Hello, my name is Connor. And I'm Jason. And you are listening to the Amazed and Perplexed Podcast. I was going for a radio voice. It didn't happen. Well, I think if you work hard, try it again. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, my name is Connor. And I'm Jason. And you're listening to the Amazed and Perplexed Podcast. Are you disappointed in me a little bit for not going for it? No. <laughs> so today we are going to be covering uh, John chapter 12 verses 20 through 26 and this is going to be part one of this little uh, little passage here, this little riff that Jesus will go on. And so, um, yeah, we're looking forward to it. Yeah, so I'll begin, as Connor said, at John 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So as I, as I process that, there, there's a lot there, and the reason I want to do part one and part two is I think this, to process this, adds a lot of life to our part two. And so, uh, yeah, Connor, as you, as you hear that, what amazes you about that? So I, I think what amazes me about this interaction and about just what Jesus says here is what it reveals about his character. God seems to esteem us when we don't hold on to things with a tight fist, we don't hold on to our own belongings, to our own life. There's something in that that is inherently good, inherently righteous. And it's honestly going to get to kind of what perplexes me of why it's set up like that. But it is amazing to me that that that's the way that things are. That's the way that God has set up the world that if we're face if we come face to face with a life or death situation, whether it's we have a chance to give our life up for somebody that we love or it's just, you know, a random act of violence or um, just an unstoppable force coming against us, there's a natural biological urge to fight against that with everything you have, to do whatever you have to do to remove yourself from that situation, to take another breath. And so what Jesus says here. He's saying that inherently in God's creation to give, to not hold on to your life, to be willing to give your life up for somebody else is good and righteous. And it's it's amazing to me that everything in us, biologically speaking, that is driving us to make decisions would go so far against what Jesus says here. And so, yeah, it, there's, it, it perplexes me and it amazes me. And I'm, I'm still just kind of trying to work through it myself. I, uh, I I think that's exactly what draws my attention too, and I, I've I've been I'm asking myself, does this amaze or perplex me? But I but I think the way that it amazes me, and how I can honestly say, yeah, this this amazes me, is how far off track I am 
I and I notice this in weird things when I watch a TV show, uh, where or a movie where someone is sacrificial, but not pragmatic. I think you're dumb. Yeah. And this, what Jesus says, is absolutely not pragmatic from a this world is my home perspective. And then I'm amazed at how far off I am of what I value. And and even I'm talking very small ways, not life and death ways. Like, I hate being misunderstood. I hate it. I hate being disrespected. I hate being rejected. Um, and that is so much easier, relatively speaking, to die to myself in those things than it is if literally I'm facing physical death. But I get so angry about those kind of things. And this, it, it's, it's very important that we see this in the big picture. So like my physical death actually allows life to bloom. And you're like, how do we figure that out? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I know people have died. How how has life come from that? And and this is really big questions. But we immediately identify, if we're trying to think from God's perspective, he's got eternity in mind, and there's things we can't evaluate. Mm-hmm. Because I can evaluate, I can love all the time. If somebody dies and they donate seven organs and seven people live, I'm like, okay, that's linear. I can understand that, the cause and effect. But it's like, what good is it for me, for a good person to die mm. who's having good influence? Because I've seen this in families where you have somebody die, uh, a patriarch, a matriarch, and then their family really seems to leave God. And I'm like, where, where was the good in that? You know. And so it's one of these things that by faith, I believe it fully. Um, but, but by the way I live, I'm recognizing, man, this scripture is cutting into me. And I'm amazed how far I am in the minuscule. So when you go from the big global perspective of eternity, and then you think, if I don't stand up for myself in this situation, how? And and I'm I've got the truth. Mm-hmm. Says every single person ever. <laughs> Whatever they, very few people are like. I probably don't know anything about this. <laughs> if they have any passion around it, you know. And and it's like if you have passion around something, you assume you know. And then if you don't hear your voice or you hear dissenting voice, you're like, what good would it do for me just to submit myself to God and not not just stand up for yourself and say, here's truth, but not go at it full force without humility and with great, great um, uh, swagger. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I want to circle back around. You said something about us us wanting God's work on a linear um cause and effect sort of if this happens and I can see the direct results and I can see the direct good that would come from something and when you were saying that something kind of popped into my head and I just want to dive a little bit deeper into it you and I if we are if we come into conflict over something I say something or I'm wrong about something or or vice versa and you become offended or I become offended whatever the situation may be and there's obviously going to be some self-talk going on in my head. Well, if Jason understood my perspective on this or if Jason knew why this happened or Jason knew even let's just say I messed up completely. It's it's 100 percent my fault. But here's what's going to be going on in my head is like, well, here's why I did that. I did it because of the way that I am. And that is because certain things happened in my childhood. I was raised in a particular way. I had this event happen to me. And so that naturally leads me to be more like this, which is why I ended up making this decision that that hurt Jason. And okay, here, here's where I got it. And 
if you're healthy, these are some things that you kind of process before. Why am I the way that I am? And when we, some, when we mess up, it's something that we can really draw on like completely. Here's okay. I, there are, there are a multitude of reasons for why I did what I did and, and why I messed up the way that I did, why I brought death in, into this situation. When it comes to other people, and I think when it comes specifically to God, we struggle to maintain that perspective. If I'm mm-hmm. kind of hearing what you say, we struggle to maintain and give that same sort of grace out to other people. And so when we do, when we die to ourselves and begin to do the work of, of self-discovery and of um, introspection, into why we are the way that we are, why God made us in a particular way, and how we best connect to other people. Um, there, there does seem to be this tendency, at least in myself, I'll, I'll just call it myself, of not giving that same grace to other people. Um, and so that, that was kind of what I, what I, the thought that I went on from, from what you said. That is, that's brilliant. I, I love that. I, so, so basically, so we've got a storybook that we've had for years uh, where one side is, is um, Cinderella from her perspective, the traditional story, but then you flip it. Literally you go to the back of the book and flip it. And then there's this story of why from the stepmothers, the wicked stepmother's perspective to mm-hmm. gain both sides of the story. And, um, and, and, and our culture, that's really popular now. So you yeah. see the reason why behind, but we give God no grace. Is functionally what I, what I heard you say. You know? Yes, that's a good. And, that's good distillation. And uh, whereas I usually don't give you grace right away, I give myself. Well, if I'm not beating up myself, if I understand some reason why, I'll give myself grace all day long. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but it takes me a few steps to start to give you grace, and I've never thought about do I give God grace? And it's not the grace. It's not exactly grace in, yes, in, in the yes. same way. It's understanding or benefit of the doubt, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then you're talking about someone that has sworn themselves to do everything out of love for you. Mm-hmm. It, like, like I can't swear myself to do everything out of love for you because I know myself. There will eventually, if if you depend on me enough, Connor, I will eventually do something in an unloving way, mm-hmm. you know. But God has sworn Himself; it's His very identity to love, and He has all power and He has all vision. And so this dynamic of believing, okay, me dying, whether it's physical death or whether it's dying to myself in a moment because I feel misunderstood, disrespected, unaccepted, rejected, whatever it is, uh, me doing that, God says he will honor and bring life out of. That to me, if I can really push into this and keep challenging myself to trust him with this, that's the secret to Christian living right there. Because it'll apply to everything, you know. The reason I don't want to forgive someone is if I forgive you, I'm giving up power. The reason I don't want, I want to be understood is because then I still have power. If I'm misunderstood, then I'm giving up power, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And and when I say this, it's so elementary, but it's really striking me in a new way, uh, is that idea of this is the crux of do I really trust God with this? You know, that dying to myself in this moment actually brings forth life. And the reason is, is the nonlinear nature. There's no cause and effect. Yeah. If you misunderstand me greatly and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to love Connor. I'm not going to push. Now, understand, I don't think clarity is sin. I'm simply saying a lot of times we'll we'll sense something's not working in our community. Husbands and wives do this all the time. Something's not working in this communication. And instead of stepping back and praying, I'm going to push in harder. Well, now mm-hmm. all these other emotions and we start kitchen sinking. You sure. know, here's everything. And it's, done to it's me. the demanding that I have the right to, I have the right to know this right now. Yes. And instead of doing the work of, okay, 
I love Jason or I love my spouse and they're acting in a particular way that I don't see as, as right. Let me do the hard work of finding out why that is. It's this aspect of I have to have this information about this person right now because I'm owed it or it's my right to know this sort of thing rather than doing the hard work of discovering why this person is doing the things that they're doing. Like we all recognize this in our relationships. Obviously, if you're healthy, your relationship with your spouse is not going to be as deep one year into marriage as it will be 5, 10, 15 years into marriage. And that's the same thing with God. Like we have to do the work, the discovery, like God isn't discovering us. He knows us completely, but we're still uncovering new aspects of him and we're still uncovering new things about him. And that's part of the journey. That's why we, that's that's why for me, Christianity is so compelling. It's not a static, here is what you need to know X, Y, and Z. It is God, God is who he is and he is in, he is constant and eternal, but he is constantly revealing new and exciting things about himself. And that's so good. And, and I, I just feel compelled to throw this in, especially if you, if, if, you know, if you're listening to this and you're raised in a context where you're always afraid of your salvation and this, like all seeing eyes watching you and you're never safe with God, you have to keep framing this, including this very conversation. Imagine you have a child that you love more than you can even begin imagine loving and they are trying to learn to love you, but they're struggling. How patient would you be? You'd be patient all day long. If you knew, man, they are trying. And that's the thing we have to remember. God's grace and patience and unlimited mercy is beyond our imagination. The goal here isn't you need to feel bad because you're not, you don't get how does dying to myself in this situation actually create life. Mm -hmm. As long as you want to learn, you're in the game and he is working with you. And keep in mind, it's not your power that he shines through the most. It's your weakness he shines through the most. So me saying, I feel no fear of saying, man, it it shocks me how far away I am from this uh, right now in my life that I just, no, where's the justice? And I must be understood. It it shocks me. No, that's good for me. That's good for me to say, oh yeah, I need a savior. Oh yeah, I knew that. Yeah, the moment you go, I've got this figured out. I've, you know, I, I don't. I, that's the moment when you know you, you, you absolutely desperately need him. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about this. I really love this concept of of God almost being a non-linear telling story. I recently this has become a thing in, in media where different movies and TV shows they'll begin to tell stories. You know, they'll show the they'll show oh there was this murder that happened and then forty eight hours later and they're gonna they're gonna you know jump in and I think. Um, Quentin Tarantino is very famous with this where, you know, some of his movies like there's just there there's the timeline of it is all over the place. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that's like just absolutely like bonkers. Like I know with my wife, she's all well, what's happening here? What's happening there? Like I right. and, and I'm like, I'm watching it with you, Hannah. I don't I don't know what's going yeah. on either. But I, I, I do think there's a reason that these stories have become to become more popular because there is an aspect of this compelling aspect of a story being revealed to you in a way that is in a non-traditional way that you typically don't experience things. Cause that's how we, that's how stories and that's how adventures happen for us, right? They happen on a linear timeline. And almost like when I think about these movies, there's an element of like kind of, now I don't know exactly what's going to happen throughout the whole thing, but there is almost like an element of kind of, it's a helpful lens to view things through that, you know, God, not only like God can view these things, 
not just in a, on a linear timeline or not just jumping back and forth in the timeline. He has complete perspective over the whole thing. And if I can enjoy that sort of experience in a movie theater, then it can help me kind of understand, okay, my way of doing things, the linear way, the cause and effect is not the only way good things can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I love being part of worship experiences, like especially retreats where you have concentrated time and you're like the the temptation if you lead, you plan every moment of every, you know, of every hour um, and to build and this kind of thing. And I think there's some legitimacy in that. But I love to leave space for stuff to really show up to surprise me. Wow, you know, this person spoke up and that led the conversation in a much more brilliant way. And I didn't plan that. I love that. I loved I loved teaching class and then stepping into, especially when I wasn't preaching regularly, and stepping into a sermon and realizing things I said at random in a class, the preacher was also saying, like like even into terminology and watching that unfold. And I think our American Christianity experience and maybe world, it, it tries to rule that out. We rule out the spontaneity. And I don't know how exactly to fix that. Uh, spontaneity, I'm not worshiping spontaneity. I'm worshiping God and giving him space to intervene. And so I'm not against planning a service well, but I do think our structure is so tight. Where is God going to break in? Mm-hmm. You know, and even in my own life, it, are my whatever spiritual discipline, we talked about Sabbath last week, whatever spiritual discipline dynamics we, we would have, do we have enough space for God to be part of that? Which is so ironic, but it is because we think, so I will do X amount of time doing this and that will lead, that will lead to that. And there's no sin in planning. It's just the idea of, of leaving that space for God to work. And this is the thing about Jesus' ministry that I think is so challenging for us when we try to translate it into our day. He was constantly in motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he was constantly in motion. He he didn't get a property and, and start trying to do branding on his property in his name. It's Jesus, completely opposite. Jesus wasn't trying to control every variable. He wasn't, and yeah. we do. It, whether if you're a leader in a church, you're trying to control as much as you can. If you're if you're a parent, if you're a friend, we we are stunned. Like COVID, I've heard so many people say, "I I was such a control freak before." Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I didn't even realize how much I controlled things. Now that we lose control, and we are addicted to being in charge of things. Isn't it ironic that like the God of the universe who is in control of everything, when he manifests himself in the form of a human, he comes as one of the le- like least controlling humans to have ever existed? Right. It, it is. It is amazing to me. It is. So, yes. Jason, what perplexes you? Now, this is so small compared to what we've been talking about, but it really does – it, it it really does perplex me, and it has to do with the with the conversation that led to Jesus speaking. You have this sequencing that um, that Philip, these Greeks come to Philip, and it has something to do with Bethsaida, you know, because there's some connection there. So they feel more comfortable. These Greeks do with Philip. Philip doesn't go directly to Jesus. The Greeks don't go directly to Jesus. Philip doesn't go directly to Jesus. He goes to Andrew. And then he and Andrew go to Jesus. And this makes me question the intimacy of this group. And and it it, may, it really speaks to the heart of how intimate do we have to be. I, I think Christians are addicted to finding a friendship group and sticking with that friendship group till the day they die. And what's interesting to me is, and I hear a lot of, I, I, don't, I don't like going to church anymore. And then when you dig down, they're not as close to the people they used to be close to. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with does God want them there. And I see this in myself. When I feel like my friendship groups are, are 
unstable, then it gets, you know, it gets messy. But I think there's an assumption, man, if we're Christians together, we should be with the same group for the rest of our life. And I just, there was awkwardness in this relationship. Why didn't, maybe just the Greeks didn't know what Jesus looked like, so I get that. But why didn't Philip just take him to, why, why include Andrew? Yeah. And why does it specify Andrew and Philip went to Jesus? It's almost like Andrew is making, hey, Philip wants to ask you a question, Jesus. So here's what kind of popped up in my mind is, and I don't think we can know specifically, but it just as a, as a, as a possible explanation. When I was younger, we always kind of had free reign to approach our parents, to ask them questions, to talk to them about different things. And so if we wanted to know, you know, what was for dinner or what we were, weekend plans were for, were there was never any sort of like um, tension built up around those things. They were very approachable. But, and I think this is a pretty universal experience, but when something bad had happened or there was tension in the household or maybe I had broken a vase or, or something bad had happened, there was always this tension of like going to my parents to tell them to talk to them about it. And uh, like, I think this is pretty much everybody can, can relate to this. And I think even for me, I remember with two older brothers, if there was something I had to approach my parents with that I was uncomfortable, that I knew was going to upset them or knew was going to put stress on them, I would even go and ask my older brothers what their perspective was or how I should handle it. And I wonder if a sort of similar dynamic is is at play here. Yeah, that I appreciate that perspective. That's not how I was reading it. And that very well could be. It's a funny dynamic because based on the question, we would like to see Jesus if this is happening, I'm like, I point at Jesus, you know, so maybe there is a formality here that I don't pick up on to, we would like to see Jesus as we're looking for a formal introduction. And it's very possible Philip is going to, to Andrew. And and I'm going to go just step out for a minute of this. The Bible doesn't include so many things when it includes something, there's significance to it. The challenge is, why is this significant to tell us, number one, why not just say Greeks came to Jesus, you know, yeah. cut out all this, you know, as relatively speaking, as few words there are in the Gospels, why include these two, three sentences about how the introduction was made? And this formality is is surprising. So at the, at the very least, we would say, even even to me, the, the most comfortable explanation would be yours in the two Mm-hmm. examples I, I am imagining, there's still this odd formality, you know, at, at the very worst, and I don't mean this as a negative so much, but it's you, we already know there's Peter, James, and John, that's the inner circle, which seems, we just accept it, but that's so weird. That's so weird. If I, as a minister said, hey, here are my favorite three people in this congregation, that would be the beginning of the end of my job at that congregation, Yes, you know, and, and he... This is not—it's one thing for me to invite three people to quietly meet off to the side. It's another thing to say, you three come with me, the rest of you, eight or nine, depending on the situation, you stay here, you know? Um, and we've talked about this dynamic of favoritism, but but it seems to me that there's another layer. So you have Peter, James, and John, and then you have a secondary layer that features Andrew and not Philip, if I use my imagining. But but sure. what you're saying, that, that makes sense, too. I, I also wonder—so it's kind of funny. This seems— there is there's some connection here but it seems pretty unprompted what jesus says so like they bring these people and the first thing the first thing that jesus says is the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified like that like you you do wonder we we can read into the text into the last you know parts of jesus life that like the weight of what he's about to go through is really affecting him and it's affecting his speech 
And you wonder as people that were friends with Jesus who are around Jesus, was there an element of like, maybe, maybe five months ago, they would have been able to, you know, oh yeah, come see my buddy Jesus. But as, as things become more serious and as Jesus becomes more reflective and even we'll talk about in part two, as he almost becomes somber, like there's a somberness and, uh, and not, not fear, but a desire for, for the, for the cup to pass. I, I do wonder, um, it's something we don't really talk about a lot is the psychology of Jesus as he nears his death and may, and how that affected the, the disciples. And you would think, Here's what I, here's my natural assumption. I don't think this is biblical, but here's my natural assumption of, oh, here's what a good leader would do is like, if I'm going to go through trials or I'm about to go through a really big phase in life where I'm, uh, I'm going to be tested and it's going to be a big struggle. Well, it's the leader's job to not let it affect his, you know, affect the underlings or affect the people below him. Um, and if this is a possible explanation, um, it is really interesting to me that Jesus is not trying to shield. And we, we'll talk about it next in part two. Jesus is not trying to shield his disciples from the fact that Hey, this is there, there's a lot of weight to what is about to happen here, um, and obviously that of course that's going to affect all the interactions that you had. If I told you next week, you know, I'm going to die, Jason, it's going to change the conversation necessarily that we're going to have from any conversation we have between now and then. Yeah, I, that's such a good point because I think we lose that we lose the overall context in most of our preaching because it takes a while to set it up, and you have a limited amount of minutes when you're preaching. And we just deal with the text, which is great, but we don't deal with the context, which would affect it. The other thing that's interesting is the Greeks are never mentioned. Like, after all this, did Philip say, there's Jesus? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, there's your introduction. It's just funny they set this up, and this is the perplexing dynamic. I guess the one-two punch. They set this all up. The Greeks want to see him, and there's big, okay, Philip and Andrew, and now they're in. And there's never a mention of the Greeks, which is like, why Why do we even go through that, number one? Number two, and the application to me is, I think I have a lot of expectations about how I should feel in my relationships with Christians. And I think if I was walking with Jesus and disciples, I would probably be disappointed on the lack of best friendery, <laughs> as it were, uh, because these people don't seem to be very intimate. And that's interesting because I keep trying to make church intimate and I'm just asking myself, you know, thinking out loud, is that really the goal? Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly think intimacy's sake for intimacy's sake is not is, is not the goal. Um, yeah, I, I do wonder. I'd have to do a little bit of study on um, like the history of of in in writings around the time, especially you know, first century Jews were they. Now there's not a lot of writings then, but were they, um, were, did they detail a lot of intimacy and a lot of, um, emotional connection? Like, is that, is that something during the time that would have been expected? And so is there an absence here or is this just the accepted? Re I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do, I do like the question though. And it, and there does bring to mind some sort of weird thing is like, I'm transported back and I'm a disciple of Jesus and I'm walking around and like, I'm like, you know what? this is a lot like church and like how for me that would be such a disappointing statement to, <laughs> to throw out there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I, I do think it, it's one of those things as I, as I get older, there's this constant struggle, um, the constant, constant struggle in myself of recognizing the beauty of, um, of repetition in church and, and liturgy and, um, and, and just the, the, if there's, 
people that are just const a constant presence and knowing that I'm coming to this place at this time to do this thing, that there is extreme value in that. And there's value in, in, in having a community around me that aren't like the closest of the close, but are still relatively close are still relatively, um, still relatively intimate, but yet, but yet I still do believe, and maybe we'll address it. We'll talk, we'll do a little bit more study and talk about it on a later podcast. I still do believe the striving for intimacy is, is, is not a bad thing. The mm -hmm. striving for intimacy is, is not, um, inherently bad. It's why we're doing it and what the, what the end goal of it would be. Right. And, and specifically, I wasn't specific with this, the lack of intimacy I'm reading into Philip's relationship with Jesus. Yeah. The lack of one-on-one -on -one time, the, the formality even, like when you were saying, I have to consider how, who do I approach because I, I broke this vase. And I'm like, that suggests if my relationship, like I believe my kids, if they broke something, they just come and tell me mm -hmm. because we've worked very hard on intimacy, honesty, uh, not hiding. It's it's better, to, which I did not have with my parents at all. You hid everything, you know, until you absolutely couldn't. And so it's one of those things that that I'm like, oh, I would expect Philip to be super comfortable to just say, "There's Jesus," you know. And so, and I may be reading in more, but but I just th this is a challenge. But I always go back to what we do know for sure is Peter, James, and John were clearly the favorite. If you have that in a family or a church, oh, these are the favorite that doesn't sow good seed. And I think that, and it may be what you're so, saying, the Jewish expectation wasn't intimacy, so they weren't missing out. Yeah. And and would Jesus work differently in America today? I don't I don't know. I don't know. It'd be really interesting. I'd love to hear from from your kids on the perspective of if you had a, like not even just like life or death scenario, but you had a really tough week coming up and you, you were just stressed out of your mind, stressed out of your mind. You knew it was going to happen. You had to get through it. It is what it is. Would your kids, like as as adults now, um, if they had a problem, would they be more willing to come to you with that problem? Or would they have the sense of, well, I've got to, I've got to figure out how to approach him because I know he's really, you know, he's in a really stressful time of life right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear their, what they would say. That's good. Tune in next week. Tune in next yeah. week. <laughs> what perplexes you, Connor? So what perplexes me, it, it's, it's the same, it's a different side of the same coin on what amazes me. So the, the way that God has set up life is that for life to, okay, let's biologically for life to happen, things have to die. For me to have energy, to sustain, to move forward in life, I have to, I have to consume something that was once living, whether that be animals or whether that be plants. I have to take life to gain life. And eventually, biologically speaking, you know, my body goes back to the earth or goes to dust and nourishes things so that they can live. That's, that's the way that things are set up. Um, and the, the fascinating thing, before death existed, our God was. And so God had to decide to set things up this way, to set up this pattern, to set up this way of doing things that it is inherently good to give my life up, whether like my, my full life or dying to myself. There is something inherently good about that when I give myself up for others or I sacrifice myself and not just it's good, but it glorifies glorifies God. It brings glory to God when we make those choices, when Jesus made that choice. And the perplexing thing to me is I don't have the creativity to come up with a better way, but just why this way? Like, why is it necessary? Like, why did God set it up that death 
this gets into a bigger discussion about about death in general why 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 death is here um but yeah it's just it's it's so it's so confounding to me i don't have an answer and i don't expect to ever really have an answer of why this is the way that it it is i know that it's partly because of us and but it, that the this is the way that jesus that god set things up is is just perplexing to me so i join you in your according to parker perplexion perplexion Gosh, it's so nice to have somebody so much smarter than both of us. I know. Now serving as our board of directors, <laughs> Parker. We should have a, we should have a, um, like an a, a mean for IQ points and just only <laughs> that way, like we can like say, yeah, anybody that talks in the show, like we just like keep upping the average IQ, so that that way we seem smarter. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I I think the, and and what I, how I would frame it is. Why did he build in that death, the cycle of as long as we live outside of him in terms of in heaven and, you know, in his system like it was in the garden, why did he build in that death was necessary for life? In other words, if if whenever something died, it just disappeared, eventually life wouldn't exist on this planet, you know, because of that, the cycle that you're talking about. And now that's a broad thing. If you if you're, I don't know, a biologist or someone <laughs> with a sciencey mind, you might say, well, what about this? But my understanding is that, and the, that's the key. And this applies to any system you see at play. I, I've thought about this a lot. It wasn't that God said, okay, Adam and Eve, you're going to have children, and you're going to reproduce in this way, and then you know, five generations in, he's like, wait a minute, I'm kind of like. The kids are to the parents as as you are to me. Like God didn't do that. Yeah. God set up marriage to be a picture of Him and His church. God set up families to be a picture of Him and His children. E- everything is a visual aid, if you will, or a conceptual construct of what of what God. It has spiritual meaning. Everything's a parable in, in that regard. Everything physical. And, and I think that that's one of those things is he specifically designed the seed, and we haven't even dove into that, but when a seed goes into the ground, and again, I'm not an agriculturalist, uh, but when botanist? a botanist, stop it. I don't know. That, I don't, I've seen The Martian. That's the only time I've ever heard that word. So I read The Martian, actually. No, so I'm a smart person. I read a book. So wow. go ahead. Yeah, I know. Be well, impressed. Now my IQ is lowered compared to yours. But, <laughs> but that seed can't stay in its state. It's got to break down. It's got to die, as it were. In, in other words, if you drop a tomato seed into the ground and then dig it up in six weeks, you won't be able to find that seed. It breaks down into the soil to produce life. And and I think that that's all a picture. And him referring to it, I just wonder sometimes from God's perspective is like, I've been waiting 2,000 years to say that. I've oh, been waiting yeah, 5,000 years. To sh- like, like per... His, like if God was mode. gonna gonna shoot the movie for the human species, he would start off the movie with like this, qu- like with the quotes. I'm bringing it full circle with what he's been waiting to say, and then it'd be like two thousand years before, and then you have the picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. It, exactly, um, and, to, however many, whatever. And, doesn't and this matter. is the thing with amazed and perplexed. One of the things we're we're certainly trying to encourage is read the Bible fearlessly. Don't be afraid when you don't understand and turn to God and say, I don't understand this or I disagree with this or this is shocking to me or I'm I'm so blown away. I need to spend some time just thinking about nothing. You know, that that's one specific aspect. The, the other aspect is this dynamic of God is a God of wonder mm-hmm. and you have a calling to live into that wonder and use your imagination and 
And wow, I mean, it just, as you walk with God and your relationship grows, as Connor was talking earlier, there should be this deepening, resounding wonder. Oh, I never even thought about that. That should be an everyday thing. My concern for us as humans uh, is uh, humans that that follow Christ is that we think well we've discovered what we need to discover we discovered the plan of salvation we discovered how to stay in God's good graces and we're done mm. and there is no life there there's no intelligent uh, like progression if you think you've already learned it that's the death of the relationship if you tell yourself I have nothing more to learn about my spouse my kids everything I already learned and now it's just be on autopilot you will not have good relationships going forward. And it also leads to disinterest in the relationship. Like mm-hmm. if you think you can't learn like, oh, there's nothing to learn new about my spouse or there's nothing to discover about my kids and my friends, then you're not going to be interested in hearing them tell a story. You're not going to be interested in hearing what their day was like or hearing about story, like anything from them. And I think the same thing, like we think, oh, we know it all from God. And so subsequently God becomes boring to us because if we know everything there is to know, obviously we're not going to phrase that. But if we think that and we act like that then why would we be interested in what God has to say if we think we already know, well, we have all the basics down and there's pretty much everything there. I think, yeah, man, that's, that's so good. Um, Real quick, before we wrap up, I want to talk about this. I think just to kind of draw something out, I might throw this in before, I might put it in after, I might not use it at all. But we talked about the idea of, um, of you, 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 you touched on it really briefly at the very beginning of the episode. You talked about when, we die to ourselves, um, that life can come from that. So when we come into a circumstance where we are in conflict with somebody or somebody has hurt us and we're processing and we have this um, proud reaction of, well, I'm owed this or I deserve that. And so I need to make sure that they know or I need to come back at them and make them feel lesser than or I need to make them understand my perspective on this that what God calls us to often is dying to ourselves of sacrificing what we want, what we desire for themselves. And so I just kind of want to talk a little bit about what what can happen when we do that. So when we come into, into a situation where, like we know, oh, there's a gunman, I jump in front of the bullet, I save your life. We know, oh, you you get to live. But what does it look like when we're in a relational setting and we die to ourselves over and over and over again for the person in front of us? I have known spouses that... There were parts of their life with their with their you know mate that they were displeased with it. You know the way they communicated their their sexual life, their financial life, their social life, their relationship with their parents, and they tried directly pushing on that. You know what I mean? They tried directly everything that would come up. They're like, see, 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 see. You know, and it'd become this argument. And I've known several. I'm just really blessed to have a lot of relationships where people keep trying to honor God, you know, in their life. And so invariably what happens is if they experience eventual success, they let go of proving it to their spouse and leaned into trusting God with it. So when it would come up, it's not to say they would never mention it because that raises another question. Is it ever right to stand up? And it is. Jesus definitely would stand up. But he was weighing it all the time, and the big difference with Jesus is when you see him stand up, like, for example, when they try to kill him and he just walks through the crowd, keep in mind, he doesn't beat everybody up. That would be vengeance. He's just walking away. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so even in that, he's giving up on his own desire. His right. His, his yeah. right to push back. Yeah. You were going to kill me. 
And and it's like, I'm getting away, yes, but you still live, and you could kill me another day, you know? So even in those things, but but there were times he stood up, but invariably it's about the other person or the bigger point. It's not about he felt an infraction, and I usually, 90% only stand up when the infraction's against me, you know? So there is a time to stand up, but it's much less than I do. But when these spouses, husbands and wives, said, I'm turning this over to God, and I'm loving this person, the relationship in time became better. And and so these are this is five, ten years after the fact. And and I think that's the key. And I think it applies to every system. When I know ministers that say, okay, I said what I need to say, I'm releasing it to God, they will say, Man, God redeemed that in, in a way. But the challenge is you have to trust him over time. Mm-hmm. You can't think you can't have the cause and effect, well it didn't happen. It didn't happen the next day. It didn't happen the week after. Exactly right. And in my mind, what happened, like there was a guy that I worked with, and I now know he's an Enneagram 8, and I'm an Enneagram 7, and there's a little bit of oil and water in that dynamic. If you don't know that, what that means is we work totally different in how we accomplish our goals. And I just felt totally oppressed by him, and I would try to make efforts. And eventually I was like, okay, I'm just releasing that. You know, What was interesting is we never connected. We never did. But it freed me up to see his strengths and situations, mm-hmm. and it trained me for the next person. Once I gave up on controlling him and trying to figure out how to fix him or at least to be understood, and I just stepped back and watched God, even though I never have, I still don't have a great relationship with that person, like we don't live around each other anymore, mm-hmm. I understand that the way he goes about things so much better just by releasing him and watching. But the key here isn't the strategy other than I'm releasing it to God. And and I want to be clear, you do it one moment, you may need to do it five minutes later, six years later, so, you know, you keep releasing it. it. Here's what I'm kind of thinking. And I'm not saying like, I'm not saying we go into the mind with the mindset of, oh, I need to fix this person, but it's dying to the idea that you're the fixer. Right. God is the fixer. And for God to be the fixer in this, this moment for this relationship, I, I can't be that. I can't be that person. Or I can't be attempting to be that person. So yeah, that's that's a really helpful framing perspective. Thank you for listening. Uh, we so appreciate, man. We so appreciate everybody that listens, everybody that tunes in, all the feedback we get. Uh, man, it just it blesses us so so much. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, if something we said today or any day sparks something in you, you can email us at amazeandperplexed at gmail.com or go to our website at amazeandperplexed.com. We would love to hear from you and. Yeah, grace, peace, and love.